0: From VOA, Press Conference USA, here
1: is your host, Carol Castillo.
0: Welcome to Press Conference USA on the Voice of America. Joining me on the program is assistant producer at the Current Affairs Desk, Sydney Sherry. Our topic on this edition of the program, cyber attacks from Russian actors. How should the United States respond? Our guest, Tatiana Bolton, policy director of the Cybersecurity And Emerging Threats Team at the R Street Institute. That's a public policy research organization based in Washington. Previously, she served in several senior capacities in the federal government aimed at defending the United States against major cyber attacks. She was Senior Policy Director for the U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission and Cyber Policy Lead in the Office of Strategy, Policy, and Plans at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, an independent organization under the oversight of the Department of Homeland Security. Over the last several months, Russian based ransomware attacks have repeatedly made the news, including attacks on Colonial Pipeline and the meat processor JBS. On June 16, U.S. President Joe Biden met with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Geneva to discuss the state of affairs between the two nations, including cyber attacks. Originating primarily from Russian actors. During the meeting, President Biden provided President Putin with a list of 16 sectors that were off limits to cyber attacks, even as Putin denied any connection to the aforementioned incidents. However, as the New York Times reports, over the 4th of July weekend, the Russian group Revo launched a single attack which took down the systems of up to 1,500 businesses. Including a grocery chain in Sweden and kindergartens in New Zealand. Revil demanded up to $5 million in ransom. After a call from Biden to Putin on July 9, Revel's sites vanished from the dark web on July 13, but it is unclear if American or Russian forces took them down or the group itself decided to lay low. Russian criminals are not the only source of cyber attacks. On July 19, The United States and its allies announced that the Chinese government was the perpetrator behind the Microsoft Exchange hack. Beijing denied the charge. Washington did not issue sanctions, but President Biden left that option open in the future. We will talk with Tatiana Bolton at the R Street Institute about the reasons behind the proliferation of such attacks, especially those emanating from Russia, and what can be done to prevent and mitigate them. Tatiana Bolton joins us via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to the program.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Tatiana, let's start with some basics. How do you define ransomware?
1: Sure. So it's a good question because I think there's all kinds of different cybersecurity incidents and attacks and ransomware is one of those types of attacks. It's a type of malware, something that gets put onto your computer that threatens to either publish your personal data or block access to that data until you pay a ransom.
0: And with regard to what we're seeing lately, how do you characterize the spate of attacks particularly by Russian actors? using ransomware?
1: So we do have to be careful about the attribution of these specific attacks because the United States has attributed some of the attacks, specifically the ransomware ones, to groups that work within Russian borders, but were not specifically operated and directed by the Russian state. So the international community is not exactly sure how many of these attacks are known to the Russian government, how many of these attacks were actually ...pushed forward by the Russian government. Whether they knew about them, we probably think they did know about them. But the attacks have been perpetrated by ransomware criminal gangs. And this has become a big problem over the last year. We've seen a number of incidents. Like you mentioned, GBS, a meat processing plant. They've come after hospitals. They've come after schools. The Kaseya attack, the most recent attack, was the one that was perpetrated by Revil, as well as JBS... And they demanded the largest ransom so far to date, $70 million. This has become such a big problem that the FBI, CISA, the cybersecurity agency in the United States, as well as the White House have started to take this very seriously. You're starting to see hearings on Capitol Hill. There is a ransomware task force that's been stood up within the federal government, within the executive branch, to try and deal with this problem. But broadly, the issue is that it's not state-sponsored, and we don't have specific recourse to go after some of these gangs. And so it's become a big issue.
0: Nonetheless, Tatiana, you are a native of Russia, and you have your finger on the pulse of the culture and the society and of course, the nature of the Vladimir Putin regime, what do you think are potential links between, for example, Russian security services and rival hackers?
1: Yeah, so it's a good question. And yes, I am originally from Russia, from Yaroslav. I think anybody who has lived there or, and knows and understands the culture, the way that the government functions, is well aware of how deep into all of the systems and functionings of society the Russian government is. And so, Knowing that and using some basic assumptions, we can deduce that the Russian government is at a minimum aware of exactly what Revel is doing. They most likely have the ability to communicate with Revel. They know who they are. They probably know where they live, where they work. It is obviously a distributed network. It's not like they're hackers that are sitting together in some office right in Moscow. It's a group of people who communicate, talk to each other on chat groups, most likely on the dark web, somewhere where it's not a public-facing website, but they have links to get in. They all have this connection with each other, and they work together to be able to hack bigger and bigger targets for bigger and bigger amounts of money. Generally, what happens in Russia is the more money you make, the more likely you are to be put up as a surveillance target within Russia. And so most likely, the Russian government is aware of all of these activities. I wouldn't want to speculate as to whether or not the Russian government is actively encouraging or specifically advocating for particular actions that Reval or other criminal gangs have done. But I will say that it wouldn't be outside the realm of possibility or likelihood that Putin could be using these gangs as a means of perpetrating attacks against his adversaries on the global stage with the ability to sort of cloak his efforts. It's completely possible, I'm not going to say likely, but completely possible that Putin is using them as a, you know, another arm of the state of the security services to do some work that they think would be beyond the bounds of what Russia could legitimately get away with without getting sanctions or without getting significant pushback from adversaries areas, including the United States. So I think that it's fair to say that if the Russian government wanted to stop these attacks or wanted to put Reval or other ransomware groups that are within the Russian borders, if they wanted to knock them offline, I bet you they could do that. I think that they could, at a minimum, significantly reduce their ability to communicate within Russia, and their money could most likely be confiscated. The Russian government, unlike the United States government, has a broader view in into Russian citizens' communications and their daily goings-on. So their security services and the Russian government has a lot more control over what happens within their borders. So I know that Putin came out and said that this is ridiculous, that this isn't the Russian government's fault. They're not responsible for these attacks, but I think that's a little bit disingenuous.
0: Exactly. He says that all the time. That is disingenuous. Many critics would say. And, you know, he uses what they call plausible deniability. But an article by Dmitry Alperovitch and Matthew Rajansky cites that they believe that if Putin chose to take the problem seriously, that, you know, Russian security officials could identify and interdict the attackers, more or less what you were insinuating, and that it is Moscow's typical practice to deny responsibility for these attacks to avoid taking action unless it's in their own perceived interests. So, you know, what should President Biden do in this case? These authors are advocating for action words are good and threats, but what actions do you think the United States should take should these attacks continue and no action is seen to be taken by the Putin regime or these actors are not relenting in their
1: attacks? You know, I completely agree with Mr. Alperovitch that the United States government needs to take stronger action. There's one thing that the Russian people and the Russian government understand, and it's strong leadership. The Russian government is not going to understand or back down from light words, not backed up by action. So I think that there's a number of different things that the United States government can do, along with the international community. And those are things that would show not only a signal of American seriousness uh, and how important it is for us to protect our critical infrastructure from attacks like this, but also reduce the likelihood of Russian meddling in critical infrastructure abroad. Those actions are, one, sanctions. Sanctions against either Russian organizations, Russian government actors seem to be conspiring with or somehow related to the rebel gang, or other punitive measures that affect what obviously is most important to the oligarchs within Russia, and that's their money. Two, I think the United States can take offensive action against the REVIL specifically, although that at this point has disbanded, although most likely has just reconstituted in another form, take action against those particular ransomware gangs ourselves. We can do that. We have offensive capability. We probably have the best offensive capability in the world. So... I think that that's another action that we can take. And I think the third thing is working with the international community to try to get international efforts going with this, perhaps through the UN, perhaps through NATO. NATO joined the attribution in the most recent attribution to Chinese activity. They can do the same thing with Russian activity. Usually this is done for state actors. So in in the scenario of the Kaseya hack and the JBS meatpacking hack, since it wasn't state action, No attribution was necessary, but there are other actions that the United States has attributed to Russia, such as the hacking of the 2016 election. All of these things can be brought up on the international stage and used as a means to affect something that Putin really cares about, and that's Russia's standing in the world.
0: You're listening to Press Conference USA on the Voice of America. I'm Carol Castiel and joining me on the program is assistant producer, Sydney Sherry. This is a reminder that our Press Conference USA podcast is available for free download on our website at voanews.com PCUSA. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Here's a shout out to a loyal listener and Facebook fan, Ashim Roy from Calcutta, India. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to PCUSA at VOANews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Now back to our special guest, Tatiana Bolton, who's the policy director of the Cybersecurity and Emerging Threats team at R Street Institute. Tatiana, I wanted to ask you, let's look at the other side for a second before we get back into what the United States, the international community can do to fight these cyber crimes, cyber attacks. What about the companies that are subject to these attacks? What can they do better to guard against being victims? What more do you think this reveals? No pun intended. What could they do better?
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of things that businesses can do. It starts with resilience. It starts with building stronger, more secure networks. And it ends with having extremely well-trained employees who can recognize phishing attempts, phishing attacks on their networks, and keep the network secure from the inside. But between all of those things, you know, it's an all-hands-on-deck situation at this point. I say this a lot because it's really important that people understand that it isn't just the federal governments uh, across the world that need to take action, the international community. And it's not even just businesses, but it's you. It is everybody out there needs to take this very seriously because oftentimes what we find is that it's not necessarily that the company that got hacked didn't have a cybersecurity filter or they didn't have some sort of antivirus software, but it's that just one single person, one employee clicked a link and they let in malware into the system that then spread from that computer connected over the internet to the next computer and on and on until they reach the computer that has network access and can restrict lock down, and delete data from the entire company's networks. So I think it's important that companies remember that it's not just what they do, but it's what their employees do. And so at this point, it's kind of like, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And right now, there's a lot of companies that are waking up to this realization. They're putting more money into cybersecurity, and that's good. But, you know, a lot of times, it's not even the money. In some sense, it is the money. We do need a lot more resources for cybersecurity on a broad scope, right, to do a lot of different things, including hire a stronger workforce for cybersecurity, which is very, very underfunded right now. But it's about the policy. It's about the rules that we set in place to protect ourselves. It's by using password managers. Please, everyone, just go out today and get a password manager. They're free. You can sign up in like two minutes and then you don't have to remember a password ever again in your life. I use one and it's such a lifesaver. It is a great and easy way to create strong passwords that protect everything in your life from your banking account to your health records to a sign-in to your favorite news website, everything. And a lot more things are going online. And so, you know, it's important for companies Companies and individuals to do the good work of remembering two-factor authentication and password managers, doing some of the simplest things, and that's what we need to do. I mean, broadly, we need to have resilient systems that can withstand an attack, can respond, and can come back after, safer. One of the biggest things for ransomware specifically is having backups. Companies need to have off-site backups, or at least backups that aren't connected to the network, the same network that the computer systems are on. Because if you have a backup on that same computer... That's not going to help you. The first thing that hackers do at this point is they go into the systems, they lock down all of your information and your data, they change your passwords to lock you out, and then they delete all of your backups they go after the backups first because they know that's precisely where you will need to go to set your systems back up again. And that's how we had such significant impacts with the Colonial Pipeline hack where for a week people couldn't get to gas or had long lines for gas and how a whole meat processing plant shut down because they didn't have backups to get their systems back up and running. They couldn't get their financial systems, their billing processing systems, all of those back up and running to get them going again. So So, you know, those are the really important things. And we also need to create a stronger ecosystem, an ecosystem where we have smart reporting requirements so that the federal government and companies are aware of all of the threats and vulnerabilities out there. So we can create a big and full threat picture and we need to protect our ISPs. To make sure that they're not sending around bad links, that they're not making bad connections, that malware can't affect them because they support the entire internet. So it's all of these things together that will stop this ransomware problem.
0: Let me turn to my colleague, Sydney, for a question.
1: Although there isn't much data on how many companies are paying ransoms, it is known that JBS and Colonial Pipeline paid a total of 11 million to regain access to their systems. Should companies pay ransoms, or is it just fueling the fire of these cyber attacks? So this is a really difficult question. So in sum, it's not the cryptocurrencies or the payments themselves that are creating the problem. The problem is that there's money to be had in blocking access to people's information and companies' access to data. And that is leading to all of these ransomware attacks. So broadly speaking, the more that we pay ransoms, the more profitable it is to ransom someone. So if On the whole, we want to stop ransoms. We have to make sure that committing ransomware attacks is no longer profitable, right? That the companies either can't get into the networks, they can't get money out of their victims, or if they do get the money, the FBI or Interpol, any sort of federal or international entities can get the money recovered, right? So enforcement of laws. The problem is that this is a collective action problem. Each individual company, when they are ransomed, have to make a decision for themselves whether or not they are going to pay the ransom and unlock all of their systems. And if you are a company and you are in the situation of providing gas, for example, to the half of the East Coast of the United States, and you've got people lining up in lines in hundreds of thousands of places and they're all screaming at you. It's the number one item on the news. Your name, your company's reputation is at stake. You know, what is that person going to do, right? I'm not surprised that Colonial Pipeline paid their ransom. I'm not surprised JBS paid their ransom. But I think that what Kaseya did by not paying the ransom is the right thing to do overall. It's the right thing to do for the community. Now, we would make this all unnecessary if all companies had backups and were able to go back to those instead of paying ransom, right? But I think that we're going to have to do a lot more work in cybersecurity to get everyone up to that standard, up to those good cybersecurity standards before we start to see that as the answer. But right now, you know, it's difficult. On an individual level, I'm not surprised. It's a very tough decision. But on a collective whole, we need to make ransomware a non-profitable enterprise.
0: Tatiana, this week the Biden administration appeared to signal its support for legislation in Congress for mandatory reporting for major cyber breaches and ransomware attacks. How much of a difference do you think this kind of legislation could make, and will it make enough of a difference quickly enough?
1: That The breach notification law put forward by Senator Warner and Senator Collins and Senator Rubio would make a huge difference. I think this is one of the most critical aspects of the puzzle that we're currently missing. We probably see maybe 5% of the cyber attacks that are happening day-to-day cyber incidents. We are not sure how much we're missing, and we're not sure even what the big picture is. So we're right now, we're seeing the tip of the iceberg. With this bill, we would get to see the entire threat picture. Now, there are other considerations and concerns when we're putting this bill in place that need to be answered, but I think that we need to make the right decision now and make this mandatory and answer those questions as they come up, as we're working through the issue within the federal government, such as how will the federal government ingest such a large amount of data, how will they use that data, how will they make it relevant and useful for the companies that are providing it on the way back out to the companies to make them more secure. I think the CISA, the cybersecurity agency, needs to make all of that clear to the companies that are participating in this program or will be required to participate in this program. But, you know, years and years of data have shown that voluntary reporting is not making a difference. It's contributing to the weak cybersecurity in our country and across the world. And so I think that we must make this reporting requirement mandatory so that we can move forward and improve our cybersecurity more broadly.
0: And Tatiana, back to what companies and individuals can do. To what extent do you think companies themselves are driving cyber insecurity problems by developing and selling software that allow for information to be stolen or modified or held for ransom?
1: Yeah, this is one of the underlying issues that's causing the entire problem of cyber insecurity. We started the internet back in the 70s with the concept that it was an open system, that we wanted to connect everyone across the world. For academics, it was for fair use and fair play. These people would never do anything to weaken the system because they were sharing basically lab data and information. However, as the Internet has grown, that sort of concept of the Internet just has proven false. We've put everything on the Internet. The Internet has connected not just a couple labs and universities across one country, but the entire world and all of its functions, including critical infrastructure. And so as we've moved to this new environment and a a completely different concept of the Internet, We're still mired in the bad habits of the past, where we build things quickly to get them to market to make money, but we don't consider security in that process. And as we continue to not keep security top of mind and a priority for the development of software and hardware, including for cell phones, computers, all sorts of things, and particularly critical infrastructure operational systems we're going to keep seeing the same problems.
0: We talked about legislation, but what about at the federal level? I believe you have advocated for a cabinet-level position, but talk more about what needs to be done at the prevention level.
1: Yeah, so at the federal level, I very much applaud the Senate and the House for passing the national cyber director into law. The position of the national cyber director is desperately needed to coordinate all federal government activity leadership is critical on these issues, and so I'm very proud to see Chris Inglis, former commissioner on the Solarium Commission, become the first national cyber director. I think he's got his work cut out for him. He's going to be the one sort of herding the dogs and cats within the federal agencies to get onto the same page, make sure we're rowing in the right direction, the same direction, make sure that all of these concepts that I've been talking about actually get implemented, right? He's got a lot of work to do, and he'll be working with CISA, the CISA director Jet Easterly recently confirmed to make that happen. They have to work with the private sector to make sure that the private sector and the federal government are coordinated, that they're sharing information, that they're responding to incidents in a coherent manner, work on the resiliency of the networks. And then last but not least is the workforce. We have a significant lack in our cybersecurity workforce. In the U.S. alone, in private industry, there's a gap of 460,000 people in that workforce, and that is not a trivial number. And so I think we need to focus on that issue. It's a priority, I believe, for Chris Singlas, which I'm very proud of. And I think all of this would be better if we had diversity in the cybersecurity workforce, get more people into it, broader mindsets, different types of thinking, different backgrounds, different nationalities, more women, more people of color, so that we more closely match the subset of attackers that are attacking us, so that we can think like attackers, so we can think broadly, more creatively, come up more quickly with new ideas so that we can fix this. And I have advocated for separating CISA, the cybersecurity agency, into its own agency. And I think that it's important because all of the things I said are a full job in and of themselves for any significant agency. But right now, CISA is operating underneath DHS. And as you well know, the Department of Homeland Security has had a number, of issues, many stemming from the politicization of a lot of the different agencies underneath DHS, which CISA has no part of, but it does get mixed up in those fights. And I think if it can be separated out, it can focus on the very real needs in cybersecurity um, and not get bogged down in political wrangling on immigration or border control. And I think that's important because cybersecurity is a huge priority. And I think we need to consider it a national security priority because it is a component of national security. And we need to make sure to do this on a bipartisan basis and do this with our international partners and across the world.
0: Well, that leads me to ask you two final questions, Tatiana. First, back to the fact that we have state actors like Russia who attacked our 2016 elections. There's concrete evidence. And of course, we know China and Iran are also involved in cyber attacks. And then we talked about the criminal gangs and networks. So to what extent are U.S. adversaries like Russia, China and Iran driving cyber attacks? And then to what extent is the path being driven by criminal gangs and networks that are being enabled by these countries?
1: So, and I would also add North Korea to that list. They're also a significant player in the cyber world. I think that these are just sort of two different groups. We've got Mm -hmm. criminal gangs and criminals that are trying to attack for money. And the state actors have their own goals, right? Russia attacking to weaken the United States or to undermine U.S. strategic aims. China, obviously growing on the world stage and trying to collect as much information as possible. A lot of their attacks are focused on cyber espionage, collecting information, collecting data, perhaps to unencrypt it once we move into a new quantum revolution. And North Korea, hacking for money as well as prestige. I don't think that one is broader than the other. I think for the United States, ransomware is a significant threat. But I think State actors are perhaps the biggest threat, specifically from Russia and China, because of the damage they can do, the resources, just the simple resources and time that states have that criminal groups don't to attack and hold at risk our critical infrastructure.
0: And lastly, Tatiana Bolton, you alluded to the importance of international cooperation on this topic. How close is the world to having any laws of cyber warfare or for cyber espionage that define parameters for what is acceptable and what is not acceptable? And would any type of law or agreement
1: help. So laws, international norms are absolutely critical to supporting and improving cybersecurity across all nations. Unfortunately, you know, the U.N. Working Group on Cybersecurity has come out with norms of responsible state behavior. Unfortunately, not all states are following those norms. And there's still unanswered questions, including whether cyber espionage is considered outside of those norms, because obviously the United States, also uses cyber espionage. All states do. But what are we going to define as cyber attacks? How are we going to define critical infrastructure? Those are the big questions that are outstanding. And I think that we haven't answered them all. And the norms that exist are just not followed by the full international community. I think it's a difficult challenge, but one that the State Department, led by Tony Blinken, will now be in charge of moving forward. And I think one of the big things that can happen this year or next year is passing the Cyber Department Act and nominating an assistant secretary for cybersecurity within the Department of State so the State Department can put more resources behind working on more of those proposals and working with more of our international partners and allies to develop these norms and standards and to spread them throughout the world.
0: Tatiana Bolton is the policy director of the Cybersecurity and Emerging Threats team at R Street Institute. Tatiana Bolton, thank you very much for your amazing insights.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: Press Conference USA on The Voice of America was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. And thanks to Sydney Sherry for producing and booking the program. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Press Conference USA on The Voice of America.